is alive. Jesus is alive. And next week we celebrate him conquering the grave, saving us through his um, act of the crucifixion. But what about the week before? What happens in the events prior to the cross, prior to the um, execution, as it were? What does Jesus do the week before? Well, if you're with me, um, I would like you to turn to the book of John, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. If you've got your version, you can pull it out on your phone, or there's going to be on the screen behind me, or if you're hardcore Christian and you've got your big books, Bibles, um, please open up with me to John chapter 12. And we're going to look at the week before Jesus. What did he do? How did he spend his time? Where did he go? What did uh, people did he meet with? What teachings did he say? Because we know the end result. And Jesus predicts part of his death. And he shares with the disciples what's going on. So he knew the end result. But everybody else still was in a bit of wonder, still in a bit of what's mesmerized conversation. And so it'd be great just to take a moment for us to go through that week together as we're in a week before Easter and just see what goes on and what kind of um, themes and messages that the author John is trying to tell us. You see, the book of um, John wasn't the first gospel to be written. So he was aware of the other disciples, his other friends, recording about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And so when John decides to, you know, put pen to paper, as it were, he was led by the Spirit, of course, but, you know, it is a man that's writing this paper. And when he decides, he decides, actually, there are certain things that I really want to include. And he decides to include um, from chapters 13 to 18, which is called like a private discourse. It's not seen in the other uh, Gospels. So he noticed that actually there's something important that I want people to see. There's a theme here that I want the disciples in the future to not forget and to know and to carry on for future generations. So as I go into this, have that in mind that the, the author was intentional in putting this detail in. And what can we learn from this? So in John, starting off from verse 12, it says, The next day the crowd, um, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, uh, daughter Zion. You see, your king is coming, seated on the donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he saw Lazarus from the tomb and raised from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard what he had performed, this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So this passage is counted in all of the four Gospels. So we see this section is um, in all of them. But I really like the way that John presents it and also because of the um, conversation he has afterwards. We're going to just stay in the Gospel of John just for easiness of sake. So Jesus is um, labeled in this passage as having an entrance, a triumphant entrance. It's not the first time that people have seen Jesus or heard his teachings or seen signs and miracles. But yet there's something about this instant that's set apart 
from other times when crowds have seen him. Other crowds have sang his praises, have looked at him and gone in wow in wonders. You know, just the chapter beforehand, he raises a man, his best friend, from dead to life, Lazarus. And so the crowds will be in shock and wonder and they'll be celebrating him and praising him. But there's a moment in this where it stands out. You see, it's where they make the link that he's not just a prophet. He's not just a good rabbi and teacher. He's not just someone who can, you know, work under the influence of God. But this is the one that was told by their ancestors. This is the one that they have been waiting for, for decades, for centuries. This is the one that is to save them, redeem them from their captivity. This is the one that is to bring salvation to all mankind. This is the one that they have been longing for. Have you ever waited for something so longing for that I don't think we could fully match up to this understanding, but maybe there's some anticipation, some expectation that we've been waiting for. And think of that and times it by 100, 200, 300, thousands of years, where these people have been given a promise. They have heard the prophets prophesy about this Messiah, and suddenly, one day, here he is. You see, the exclamation of their joy, of their praise, was so loud, was so emotionally driven, was so just with truth and scripture, like, wow, this is the king, this is the Messiah, Hosanna, Hosanna. I don't know how they could probably contain it. No wonder they were throwing their um, coats, you know, uh, for the donkey and their palms, and they were like waving around. That was their symbol of the palm trees to say, this is victory, victory is ours. And it's like maybe today having our confetti out, and we were having this you know, red carpet going down. This was their version of this is the most high, famous person, celebrity we ever have. And when he enters in, what you might expect is you know, much glamour. You must, might expect when you see red carpets on um, the internet where they you know, really doll themselves up and they will have a grand entrance. Jesus has a grand entrance but he enters humbly. He enters on a young donkey. He does not come on a war horse. And a lot of this is very symbolic because many of the Jews would have expected from knowing the um, stories of the prophecies, but also knowing maybe other legends of the faith of how they've brought freedom from their captivity. They were probably expecting some kind of national uprise against the Roman Empire. They were really anticipating some kind of you know, war to be taken place. But when Jesus enters on a young donkey, he enters showing, I'm coming in peace. I'm not coming to create chaos and havoc in this world. I'm causing chaos and havoc in another world and that I will triumph and I will have victory over, which in turn gives you victory here. So as Jesus comes on this um, little donkey, you see, Jesus has already kind of, you know, done wonders, done miracles, but this is the moment where the crowd starts to realize. They start to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, the servant king, rather than maybe a warrior king. And so a lot of this has to pro um, fulfill prophecies. And so in um, Zechariah 9, 10 to 11, a lot of this is echoed in the scriptures of this is how the Messiah will enter on a donkey's cult. So Jesus was different to all the kings they've maybe seen before, but also maybe other false prophets that have come before that have maybe tried to take it through power and through influence and through titles. But Jesus has it in this moment of the power, of the influence, of the titles, and instead he decides to surrender it to the people and to be close to them. So what I want us to look at is, well, what, why did Jesus do this? What was the, um, the reason for it? 
So of course Jesus came to save the people. He wanted to bring them freedom. But he did not want to just bring them freedom from the Roman Empire. Because we know as one empire falls, another one is built. As we know one king dies, another king is put in place. We know as one kind of government goes, another one is put in place. So to overcome a ruling of just a person is not enough. He had to conquer the very essence of what the evil was itself. He knew he had to come face to face with death itself. So surely this man would take victory, the people said, and would have thought and would have uttered among themselves and would have believed and would have hoped maybe even, would have taken victory like our ancestors did. So you see that the Jewish people, they would have grown up of hearing so many of the stories of um, the legends of the faith, as it were. If you read Hebrews um, chapter 11, I think it is, you have a whole kind of hall of fame, as it were, of the faith of the people. And you see Abraham and all these incredible legends. And they will have seen um, and heard about Moses who came. And, you know, he was a great businessman. He had a flock of sheep, but he used his power and his leadership to set people free from captivity and slavery. They will have seen how David, you know, conquered tens of thousands of um, people in the army to give them protection and to glorify God. They will have heard about Esther and how she used her power and her influence to stop a genocide from happening. So, so there's a lot of things of where you understand. Surely this is what's happened before. Surely this is how it's going to take place now. And sometimes we can be like this. God, surely you're going to do it like this because that's what's happened before. Surely this is how you're going to overcome this circumstance in my life. Surely this is going to how you provide for me in this situation. Surely this is how um, reconciliation is going to take place in relationships because this is what you did before. This is the pattern we see. And Jesus kind of just throws out the patterns, as it were. And he says, I come in peace. So just because you experience God's work in one particular way doesn't mean that this is how it's always going to be. Okay, let's have a little look at the crowds then. So I bet if we were there at the crowd today, we would be as high as a kite. Emotions would be going crazy. I mean, just think of like one of your best moments in life, whether it's kind of your favorite football team finally, you know, winning some kind of trophy, whether or not it's um, maybe your wedding day or something that kind of, you know, seems such a height of celebration for you. This crowd had such an anticipation, such an exhilaration of joy, of love, of wonder. And remember, they've just literally come off a high of seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, many of them. And some of them are making their pilgrimage towards, because uh, it's the Passover time to Jerusalem, so they're getting ready for that whole um, kind of celebration and event going on. And it says in, that many of the crowd leave Jerusalem to come to Bethany to welcome uh, Jesus, the Messiah. So we know that um, this crowd are rejoicing. But many of you who have read and continue to read this story or have heard it spoken before, you know that that's not um, just where the crowd leaves it. The crowd don't continue just to celebrate forever, ever. Actually, they can't even last one week. <laughs> one week later in chapter 18, they're now shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so Jesus knows this. He predicts that he's going to be rejected. He predicts that he's going to be beaten and bruised and scarred and killed and executed. He predicts that he's going to rise again in three days' time. He tells them all of this. 
Do you know what I think? If I knew that I was walking into a situation where someone was going to praise me one minute but stab me literally in the back the next minute, I don't know if I would come humbly, number one. I don't even know if I'd walk and want the celebration, number two. Because you know of the betrayal that is going to come. You know of the hurt that is going to come. But yet Jesus looks at the hurt and goes, it's worth it. I, I think it's absolutely fascinating, but that gut f- feeling like as if you were maybe walking to the dentist times 100 or whether you know you're walking to that exam times 100 and that kind of quenching feeling I don't know what Jesus was feeling like but he knows what he's walking to yes he's walking to his victory but there's the pain towards that victory there's the deceit there's the betrayal towards that victory So they flocked to him. And in this moment, they are celebrating him. They are shouting their praises. They are just, you know, absolutely loving on him. And in that moment, it could be very easy in my own humanity that I would expect I would just like take on all of this. And I'd be like, whoa, I'm amazing. Look at all these people flooding for me. And like, let's be real about this. There would probably be some ego that would probably build up inside you of, wow, this is kind of, you know, out of the ordinary. I've never seen this before. They're calling me the the one, the Messiah, the Savior. Okay, let's do this. Let's go. And they could very easily, Jesus could have taken this as, this is where I'm going to get my strength from. This is where I'm going to seek my affirmation from. It's from people celebrating me and praising me. But we know too well that if that's how you live, and you will also die by the crowd. And so where Jesus didn't just take his affirmation from the people, you know, he embraced it. He received it. But that's not where he gets his inner strength from. We see all throughout um, the first 12 chapters of John, that Jesus is in his, what they call the public ministry. So where Jesus is performing the miracles, he's doing his famous teachings, and that's all recorded. But most of the time he spends with a few, with a core, and other times he retreats entirely by himself just to be with a father. We can see through his lifestyle, through the patterns that he's chosen, the habits that he's formed and created, that he has decided that actually I'm going to let the father speak into my life. I'm going to let this be the source of where my affirmation comes from. So yes, we can receive the praise from the people, but it also means you can receive the criticisms from people, you can receive the betrayals from people and still stand strong and firm. I don't know in a maybe a reflective question for yourself, but as I was reading this, I thought, how would I prepare a journey towards my victory or towards being recognized, as it were? See, Jesus was always the Messiah, but this is a moment where people call on him and recognize him and instate him with it. Maybe where would you say is your, your journey to? So he's journeying to Jerusalem. Where, where is this that you're going? How would you dress? Would you dress to impress? Or would you organize like a banquet, banquet for the other side? Would you call a paparazzi and get the journalists in and make this, you know, even bigger than it is? How would you prepare? And how would you prepare for post this celebration? So Jesus, we know at Christmas time entered the world humbly as a baby, not just as any old baby, but actually one who had to run away from his home with his parents, you know, because of the um, government situation at the time and the rulership. And so we know that he was a refugee in um, in Egypt for his like formative years. And then he came back to Nazareth and then he developed um, as a younger man in his 30s and then he starts his ministry. So we know that his ministry is also very humble. You see Jesus serve the poor, the widows. He heals the lame and the sick. 
So why do we think his death would be any different? His death, he is humble, he serves right to the end and through it all. Because he is loyal to the mission he's been sent on. You see, Jesus wasn't doing this just because he had a good idea one day. Oh, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm such a great guy. I'm going to decide to be a, s a sacrifice for all of humanity. And then I'll be put on a cross. And then three days later, I'll raise up because, you know, I can do that by myself. And then I'm just going to, you know, tell everyone this is uh, the new movement, Christianity. You follow me. No, no, he doesn't have this idea. He's sent by the Father. And they have this conversation, as it were, in heaven. And he's like, okay, I submit to this mission. He comes and he fulfills the mission. So he's loyal to the mission throughout everything he does. So Jesus responds to the crowd's praise in this way. So if you want to uh, join me at verse 20 and we'll continue reading. So have a think of how would you respond to a crowd of people shouting Hosanna, shouting praise to you. And then this is how Jesus responds. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bathsheba, um, Shida, in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and wherever I am, my servant will also be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it, um, it had thundered. Others said the angels had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now, is, now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will reign forever. So how can you say the son of man will, must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the light does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Jesus decides to speak about seeds. <laughs> the initial thing Jesus decides to do in this moment is teach using his gifting and to explain to them, to comfort them in his prediction of death. He's not doing it to say, hey, look at me, I can predict my own death. He's saying, no, I, I'm going to tell you these things so when it happens, you're not shocked, you're not frightened, you're not scared. Although we know they do get shocked and frightened and scared. And so Jesus decides to tell them about this process of how seeds have to die so that they can grow roots and birth a new you know, fruit tree or a plant, whatever it might be. And so he's using this as a metaphor, like he often did, um, to explain something else going on. And he was explaining his death in that way of how he has to die so there can be new life. He has to surrender willingly um, so there can be um, a new life. What I find interesting is that 
uh, John in this whole discourse here, he decides that he wants to show that Jesus was in control. And this is very important for our salvation because if we don't believe that Jesus was in control in every stage towards his crucifixion and there afterwards, then it was just a coincidence that he was betrayed. It was just a coincidence that, that he was whipped so many times. It was just a coincidence that he was crucified next to two thieves. It was just all these just coincidences. Or he had no control, so he you know, was weak and he um, took all this beating and this bruising, which actually killed most people, so showed how actually fit he was as a, as a, as a man, and what he, he, he was trapped. He couldn't get out of it. We know that he had a choice. He could have very easily got out of these painful situations. He could have very easily decided, nah, it, this is too much. I, I don't want to do this, but he decides to put himself in every situation. Wow. Like, that blows my mind, knowing that I'm going to go into a relationship and they're going to hurt me. Knowing that I'm going to go into this scenario and they're going to reject me. Knowing that I'm going to have to die for these people who do not yet love me. That blows my mind. But only Jesus could truly do that for us. And so he displays something of how we are to love and how extravagant his love really is so that we now take his teachings and don't just talk about it but we, we put it into movement into action we display a sacrificial love even to those who do not deserve it even to those that have hurt us who have persecuted us have rejected us abandoned us have you know been our best friend one minute and then used it as gossip the next he says keep loving on them sacrifice humble yourself serve them because he served us while we were just like that to him. So Jesus then decides to um, move to a solitude place and spend some more time with his father. You see, again, we see that his energy does not come from the crowds, but it comes from the father. I want to ask you, where does your energy come from? Does it come from the applause of people going, way, come on, that's a really good girl, come on, that's awesome. Or is it because your father's going, I'm proud of you, I'm smiling over you, keep on, keep on. Where are you looking for your affirmation? So Jesus predicts his own death, and not only does this cause confusion with the symbolism, but the biggest confusion, again, is that the scriptures say that the Son of Man will live forever. So how on earth can our Messiah now, who we finally waited for, and we're celebrating and we're singing Hosanna, and then he decides to tell us, I'm going to die. <laughs> that like, It makes no sense. How can you die? Why would you want to die? Why are you telling us this? Because the scriptures tell us you don't die, you live forever. But actually, what's interesting about this is that when Jesus says it, he doesn't try to over-explain it. He just says, this is happening. And then a voice comes to confirm it. And when the spectacular happens, when a voice comes from heaven, the people are amazed. But you notice Jesus is not stunned by it. He is not kind of like bewildered by it, like, whoa, what was that? Or, oh, I'm glad I got it right. No, he says, actually, this spectacular moment wasn't for me, it was for you. And I wonder, and it got me thinking about many times where God has given us things. He's given us dreams. He's told us words. He's given you encouragement. He's told you that you are enough in a hidden moment, in a private place, in your secret time with him. But yet we glean for the known time where like maybe it's like echoed from heaven. And he's saying it's not that that's bad, 
But when that happens, that's for other people. So if you've received a word about your purpose, about your calling in life, when you know someone affirms that over you, maybe publicly, maybe in your connect groups, wherever it is, that's not really so much for you. That's for everybody else to recognize it in you. It was for the whole crowd to realize, no, actually, this is the mission that he's been sent on. So the other side of it is, okay, but death, we've still got this pointer of you're going to die, and well, how can we be saved if the Messiah is dead? Like, that doesn't really seem to work. And we see, you know, after the crucifixion and Jesus is taken to the tomb, the disciples go into that fearful trance, as it were, and they go into hiding because they're just fearful of the unknown, and this was the one we followed for for a few years, and well, what's happening? This doesn't seem to make sense. But just because God said it's not going to end in death does not mean that death's not part of the process. And I want to encourage some of you that just because maybe you're going through some hardship, maybe you're going through some brokenness, some tears, you're going, oh, but God, you said, you know, this was going to happen. But it doesn't mean that other things aren't part of the process. Like the seed, it had to die before it could give birth. Like a a pregnant lady has to go through pain (laughs) to give birth. Like there is a transition of that pain for the growth. And often we see just that like snapshot moment and we compare our like pain snapshot moment to other people's like, you know, highlight glorified moment. And then we're like, this seems a bit of jad. Or we compare it to the vision that God has given us or the dreams and the callings and the words and the scriptures that have been declared over our life and we're like something seems a jad something does not seem to match up here but actually God's like that's not the end that is not the end and I want to encourage a couple of you I don't know who it is but just to say today is not the end your situation this circumstance that you know relationship this financial situation that career that feels like it's a dead-end job is not the end and I tell you why because where Jesus died and it looked like the end. And for three days, it looked hopeless. For three days, it was dark. For three days, there was fear. You might be in that moment where it feels the darkest of dark seasons. You might feel like situations are not just like bad, but they are like dead, like, you know, dried bones, dead. Like there is no way that this is ever going to be, you know, any hope. It's just, it's gone. My dream is gone. My, you know, relationship, my marriage is gone. You might think that there are so many things that just seem to be dead to the world but actually to God it's not you see three days later we know that Jesus rose again he was resurrected and that same power that resurrected him from the grave is within you and I if you want it if you let it in if you say Holy Spirit come and so the Holy Spirit can resurrect those dreams resurrect those relationships those finances those careers those callings whatever feels completely dead and destructed and I mean dead I don't just mean like oh there's a chance of this solution I mean there is literally no way. There is no way, literally, that this can come out in your own ambitions, in your own talents, in other people, meeting like the best connections of people. But God can make a way. And many of us can testify to that of where we've been in maybe an educational situation and, you know, we need to pass this exam and it just seems to be no way. Or we've had this, um, you know, relationship with someone and there's been so much heartache and so much pain and so much misery and so much deceit and so much, you know, lies that there is no way. There is no way that reconciliation can come. Uh, but yet, God doesn't just bring reconciliation. He brings new birth. He makes it stronger and more beautiful. So we know from our own testimonies and from the testimonies of those that have gone before us in the scriptures that our God is a God of redemption. Our God is one who is resurrecting lives through his victory on the cross. So if you're going through this moment of, but you said this, God, 
but you said that I wouldn't die. You see, with Lazarus and um, his uh, sisters beforehand, you know, this have a conversation of, you know, I'm really sick, go and grab Jesus. And then Jesus decides to basically take his time about it to go to Lazarus. And he um, dies in the process of Jesus meeting him. And so they're like, but you said you were coming, but you said you were on your way, but you said he wouldn't die. No, no, it wouldn't end in death. But he had to die so that you could see the power of the Spirit, so you could see and see the signs and the wonders. And so sometimes there's things in our life that has to die completely, so we learn to surrender. So we learn to realize, actually, we'll just worship this with all that we've got, so that we know that it's not in our will, but it's for God, and so that we lift up our relationships to him we lift up our careers to him and we just give it to him and say it is all yours I surrender it through you because death was not the end of the story and this situation this darkness this death whatever it might be labeled in your life is not the end of the story it's just part of the process so I want to ask you another reflective question are you only as strong as your last experience as it were are you secure because you spent time in his word, you spent time in God's presence. You see, many people survive because they come Sunday to Sunday. They come, you know, Monday to connect group or they'll come, you know, maybe monthly and they will kind of take in what they need and then they'll kind of go out again. But you see, many of you might even survive because of a word that someone has given you personally. And I'm not saying that is wrong but you won't survive and thrive through it. You'll just keep going up and down like a roller coaster. And God hasn't intended your relationship with him to be like a roller coaster in the sense of, well, I'm really full now and then I'm dry and I'm thirsty. Really full now and now I'm dry and thirsty. He wants you to be sustained with him. And that means that you've got to just spend time with him. It means that you've just got to read your word. You've got to just talk to him throughout your day and pray and listen to what he is saying to you. And then see that that is enough. You don't have to have the praise of your father. You don't have to have the praise of your boss or co-workers. You don't have to have the praise of your um, partner in your marriage. You only need God's word is enough. And then you're not scurrying around and scavenging around and chasing around other people for applause and attention, but instead you're secure in who you are. So yes, if people applause you, then that's wonderful, that's lovely. But also you're ready and secure and firm if people are hurting you, if people are slandering you, if people are gossiping about you causing false accusations against you you are secure you stand strong in who you are because you know who God is so you know who you are so um for time's sake I'll um wrap this up a little bit so as Jesus um continues um kind of talking to them it's a bit of a bittersweet moment really it's sweet in the sense of you know the redeemer has entered the room and we know that we are preparing ourselves for Easter and we know how the story ends and so we're excited and we're you know so ready for what is to come but there is that bitterness about well actually people were craving uh for attention people were craving um for, uh, I'm trying to think of another word, just kind of to, to be known, as it were. And so people are fickle, is basically what I want to say. And sometimes if people reject you, it doesn't mean it's a personal thing. The crowd was just fickle. They were just in that whim of a moment, 
they were pro-Jesus, then they were crucify him, and then they were see him after the resurrection, and they're like, oh, I'm pro him again. It wasn't personal against Jesus, it was just that they didn't know where they were. They weren't secure in who they were. And I want to urge you to be secure in who you are, not because the crowd says one thing, and then the next week it says another thing. If you go through what the crowd says, you're going to be having a roller coaster life. But if you go through what the word of God says, if you go through what the Father says about you, then you will have a sustained identity, you will have a sustained calling, you will have a sustained in a sense, um, security and strength as well. So I'd encourage you this week to prepare for Easter. Walk through the journey that Jesus took. So the next chapter, Jesus starts washing the disciples' feet and he shows them how as a leader, you have to be a servant leader. And so maybe for you in your context, you know, you've got some power and influence. And rather than coming in in your, you know, war horse, you'll come in in your donkey and you'll be close to people and people can get to know you and see your vulnerabilities and just get to, um, to love on you in a close way, but also that you can serve them and love on them. So if you read from like chapters 13 to 18, where it leads up to Jesus' arrest, um, then you'll kind of uh, get to see how did Jesus spend his time? What did he do? Who did he talk to? Where did he go with things? And um, it will just open up eyes because like I said, this section isn't in any of the other gospels. So the author John was very intentional of wanting to put it in. He wanted to let you know that Jesus was in control every stage of every step of the way every stage every event every moment every you know wick he chose to take it he chose to receive it every nail that was in his hand he let them put it in it wasn't in the sense of him being strapped down and like kicking and crying and like don't do this to me he surrendered himself and it's absolutely insane to think about in the humanity form of Jesus but also in just the humanity form of us as well of the just the willingness to put yourself through that pain, but to know that at the end of the day, there is the freedom, to know at the end of the day, there is the victory, to know that how Jesus spends his week, the week before your death, if you knew that you were going to be crucified in one week's time, this time next week, how would you spend your week? I mean, let's be real, I'd probably expect people to be doting on me. <laughs> I'd expect people to be loving on me. I'd expect people to be serving me, not the other way around. Our mindset and our humanity is a very different way, where God is like, no, we're, we're countercultural, we're very different. But the other bit that I really want to point out is that Jesus promises the Holy Spirit to his disciples. So Jesus keeps reiterating the importance of knowing they need the spirit of truth, that they need the Holy Spirit within, that they need to understand that the law, their um, kind of Old Testament, as it were, had prophesied all this to come to pass, the persecution, and that they need to understand that they need the spirit of truth. So I want to encourage you to prepare your hearts and your minds and your souls and, you know, just your um, time so that you can spend time in his word this week. You know, one chapter a day would do it, um, or if you want to do it this afternoon, and just walk through that journey with Jesus. See what he's wanting to tell you about preparing towards Easter this week. Listen to what he's saying. What does he want to develop in you? What does he want to actually truly kill in your life so that he can resurrect in your life? What does he want you to kind of pay attention to? What does he want you to surrender in? And then allow the Holy Spirit to resurrect those things in your life. Those, that faith, those hopes, those dreams, you know, finances, marriage, whatever it might be. Um, and just allow yourself to immerse in that. Immerse in your, that 
presence and that context so that you learn to sustain yourself through what the Father says of who you are. So that when those moments come of persecution and a week later they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, Jesus can stand up strong. He can stand tall and say, I'm on a mission for my Father. I'm here for a destiny, for a purpose. It might look like it's all gone wrong, but this is exactly what's supposed to happen. And I choose to put myself in this place. Some of you might have to choose to put yourself in the face of persecution, but actually you know because it's for a greater cause. It's because God has sent you on this mission. And so use your influence, your power, your position to bring glory to God. Amen. I was going to ask the uh, band to come up. Um, for a moment, and then uh, we'll close. So just spend a moment just reflecting over some of the questions that we shared. Aren't you thankful that we serve a God who demonstrates his love so extravagantly to us, so beautifully? Earlier, um, Jesus mentions this in John 14. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The, word cannot, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he live, lives with you and will be with you. Maybe you've never you know, let the Holy Spirit come into your life. Maybe you've never let him empower you and guide you and you know, show you things about you and resurrect things in your life. Well, maybe this is a great moment for you just to let him in and just say, Holy Spirit, come. It's a prayer that's been prayed for thousands of years. Very simple, but as you just let him in and let him govern your life, you're also saying, I'm dying to self and I'm letting you reign. See, Jesus could have very easily lived a life where, because he was a clever man, he was a strong man, he um, could have had a very wealthy, rich, comfortable life here on earth. But he decided to cast that all as pointless, as all garbage, as Paul says, to actually decide that I choose to deny myself of these things. What things do you maybe need to deny yourself of? What things do you maybe need to cast aside of for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of glorifying God, for the sake of a bigger purpose, a mission that you've been sent on? So if we just close our eyes and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you that you have spoken to us this morning. I thank you that you sent your son on a mission. And we thank you that you have thought of us from the very beginning of creation. And we know that the story does not end just a week before Easter. We know that there was the pain, the suffering. We know that there was the death, but there was the triumph too. There was the victory. There was the praise, the celebration. There was the new life, the salvation. And we know that you have gone to be um, back with the Father, Jesus. And you have left us an advocate. You have left us the Holy Spirit to be with us, to be our friend, to guide us, to, you know, heal us, to strengthen us. And so we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come into our lives, that you will come and take your place, that we will surrender ourselves, that we will, you know, die to self so that you may live in us. And we pray that as we, you know, prepared to Easter, that it'll be more than just buying chocolate eggs, it'll be more than organizing family time, but it'll be time where we spend time in your word and see what did you do towards the crucifixion, what did you do towards your execution, so that we can learn from those teachings and we will let ourselves be transformed by your word. 
Help us to not just look to the applause of people around us as our affirmation and as our strength, but that we will look to you and what you say and who you say we are. And that will be the source of our identity.